Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Hey everyone, I've got a bunch of quick announcements I want to make here at the beginning of the episode. First of all, welcome to all the new listeners. The podcast has been growing quite a bit recently, and I just want to encourage you who are new to check out the back catalog. We've got nearly 80 episodes at this point. There's a lot of really good material further back. So if you're new to the podcast and you're resonating with it, take some time and check out some of the older episodes. I want to take just a quick minute to talk about patronage. You hear me mention patronage a fair amount on the podcast, so I'll keep it really simple. Just to say that patronage is really what keeps the podcast going. It allows for me to pay for studio time, to pay musicians, to pay for research, and really it's the single best way to support the artistic vision of the podcast. So if you feel like you're getting something from the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. Right now, we've got about 5% of our listeners as patrons. And really, I'm reaching out directly at the beginning of this episode to see if we can maybe increase that number a bit. I feel like in the spirit of supporting the arts and supporting the imaginative vision, that maybe that number could be a little bit higher than 5%. Like upping that to about 15% or 20% of listeners, I think, makes sense. So again, if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting something out of it, please consider becoming a patron, and patronage starts at $6 per month. It's about the cost of, you know, a pumpkin spice latte or nine stalks of celery, (laughs) which, you know, you can evaluate if the episodes are worth nine stalks of celery. And again, it really helps me. It helps me do it full time, which is really what I want to do. It's my life's work. It's my passion. And it requires patronage to make it happen. So if you feel inspired after this to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash the Emerald podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald podcast. And now on to some more fun announcements. Many of you know the singer Pia. She has contributed music to a couple of episodes. She is featured on this episode. She's an absolutely incredible singer and songkeeper, student of traditional songs and stories from around the world. She and I are going to be offering a short-form course together in March. The course is called Singing the World to Be, a deep dive into the mythosomatics of invocation with the Emerald Podcast's Josh Shry and songkeeper Pia Luzzi. As you've heard me talk about on this podcast a lot, the myths were traditionally spoken and sung aloud in a cycle in which the singer and storyteller learn to become an instrument, to hollow themselves out, to listen to the animacy of the world around, and to allow that animacy to move through them and express itself. So this course is going to explore the vibrant traditional songs and stories that invoke this cycle, and will also explore what it means to become more deeply attuned to this cycle ourselves, so that the instrument body of the practitioner starts to hum 
a little bit more. So a typical session in this course will involve drone work, storytelling, singing, guided mythosomatic meditation, and discussion. And you don't have to have any musical ability for this course. It's a deep dive into the mythic power of invocation. So if this sounds interesting to you, email themythicbody at gmail.com and put invocation course in the subject header, and we'll send out more details over email within a couple of weeks. I will also be teaching an in-person immersion on the island of Kauai, March 1st through 5th. This is going to be a deep dive into the mythic muse, understanding mythologies of shedding, understanding mythologies of listening, understanding mythologies of invocation and singing back. Similar themes that I'll be exploring in the online course with Pia, but it's in person and we'll have a chance to listen to waterfalls and connect to land and be in a really phenomenally beautiful place together. And so it's five days, and if you're interested in finding out more about this immersion in one of my favorite places on the planet. Also email again themythicbody at gmail.com and put Hawaii immersion in the subject header. All right, I think that's just about enough announcements. Now on with our episode. Let us fly. Where shall we begin? our journey of embodied soaring. Where shall we begin? Where shall we begin our journey of nested transcendence? Where shall we begin our journey as birds? Let us go first to the Nile River. Let us go to the Nile River at sunrise and let us look upon the birds. Can you see it? The field of reeds at sunrise? The steady plunk of the ibis beak in the water? The call of the cormorant? The flight of herons in the morning? The white stork rises in the morning? The flamingo rises in the morning? Each of these birds, each of the dozens upon dozens of water birds of the Nile Delta, has its story. The circling swallow reminds us that Isis once flew as a swallow, and once she became a kite, an Egyptian eagle. The falcon is Horus. The hutter, hutter, hutter sound of the god's name, the sound of the turning of the wings in flight. The ibis with its crescent moon beak is Thoth. The stories teem with birds. And so, when the birds rise in the morning, so do the stories. Each murmuration, each arcing flight, invokes story, invites bodies to soar into imaginal spaces. All across the world, the myths are alive with birds, alive with the sound of flapping wings. The myths sing like nightingales, squawk like crows, dive like falcons, soar like eagles. In the myths, spirit birds fly. The myths rise like birds through the upper strata of the atmosphere into unknown heights, through the dome of sky into the celestial spheres beyond. In the myths, in the dark surrounding forest at night, the sudden light of a firebird ignites. A spark is initiated, an idea is formed. 
a quest has begun, a space is opened up, an invitation given to fly. All because of birds. Mythically, birds, of course, are messengers, intermediaries, bringers of prophecy. Birds bring news of happenings in other places, perching on Odin's shoulder and whispering in his ear of that which transpires in faraway lands. The silence, the vast silence at the beginning of time, the Egyptians said, was broken by the trumpeting of a white goose. The world itself stimulated into being through the call of birdsong and the fan of flapping wings. So you can say that birds represent what in the myths? Prophecy, message, far-seeing vision, spirit flight. You can say all these things. But to talk about what birds represent in myths is to lose all the wonder, all the somatic texture, all the felt reality, the high, bright spaces the expanded space and piercing cries and far-seeing eyes that birds bring. For to sing of the falcon is not to sing about something. It is to invoke the falcon, to feel the falcon, to become the falcon. The question is not what the eagle in the story represents. The question is, as the storyteller sang of the eagle, did the hair on your skin start to rise? Did you feel feathers poke through your skin? Did you bristle with new white down? Did you grow wings? As the storyteller sings, do you grow wings? That's the question. And with a few great strokes of those wings, suddenly, aloft, the ground below receding as you rise, the horizon expanding as you rise, the scope of your sight widening, broadening as you rise, into the ever-blue you rise, shedding the close and familiar perspective for something vaster, something greater, something more expanded. Birds take us up. Prana, the vital upward-forward-moving energy, is, according to the yogic texts, a bird. As prana rises in absorption and trance, we feel the unmistakable rush and expansion of traveling up. A famous archival photo of a Siberian shaman in trance shows him looking up as he drums. Up. Up. Ready to fly. How central it is to our somatic architecture to look up and follow with our eyes the flight of birds. Our ancestors looked up and saw birds, and the birds grabbed their attention. And with a rush of ecstasy and expansion, hallmarks of the trance state took that attention through this very simple somatic energetic of uplifting the eyes to meet the birds and following them with the attentive focus, 
birds take the consciousness up. So rapture and raptor come from the same root, to take away, to be taken out of the limited perspective into something higher, wider, deeper, vaster. Do you hear? Birds take our consciousness up. Birds take our consciousness into the high, clear vastness. Birds take our consciousness into the imaginal space. Up we go. In fact, you could even say that to access imaginal spaces requires birds. Birds traverse the intermediary layer between our skulls and the impersonal expanse of the sky. Birds imprint in our somatic field of perception as upward movement, floating, soaring, as great spiraling arcs, as soaring bodies. Our minds are stimulated, our minds expand to meet the birds. Our bodies expand to meet the birds. In the sky field of consciousness, a murmuration stirs, a wave ripples and bends. In the sky field of consciousness, we fly. In the sky field of consciousness, we fly. Birds are intermediaries. Imagine if there were no intermediary layer of pulsing, swirling, arcing life between us and the vast heavens. Imagine if there were nothing living between us and the stars. No swallows circling, no eagles soaring. Imagine, how would we know the possible? How would we explore the three-dimensional space of our own beings? How would our consciousness know the limitless and how to get there? How would we see our lives from above? How would we gain perspective? How would we know the way to dry land or safe harbor? How would we dream? Birds taught our minds to soar into the realm of imagination and ideation, a space that lives between us and the vastness a space that is populated with circling birds. Birds are ideas. And you can say, right, that's a nice metaphor, birds are ideas. And you know what I'm going to say here. It's not a metaphor. The human neural cortex grew and developed in a world teeming with birds. So as human visions of the cosmos expanded, they did so in a somatic sky space of birds. And many of the foundational ideas that the human neural cortex has come up with over the past several hundred thousand years are deeply interwoven with birds. What do I mean? Well, we can talk on a totally material level. It goes without saying that one of the very foundations of the modern world, the airplane, air travel, never would have happened, at least not in the way that it happened, or in the timeline that it happened, without birds. The impulse to fly comes from birds, an impulse that has completely reshaped the world and our place in it. And the impulse to fly in other ways also comes from birds, so much so that many of the religious ideas so embedded in Western minds, for example, that we take completely for granted, can be traced back to the imprint in our bodies and minds left by birds. Let us go again to the Nile River. Let us go to the Nile River at sunrise, and let us look again 
upon the birds. So central were birds to the ancient Egyptians' embodied experience of the universe that the very Egyptian language has been called the language of the birds. And that too sounds like poetic embellishment until you actually see a panel of hieroglyphs and you realize that what you're looking at is mostly birds. Vultures perch on those sandstone walls and falcons by the thousands. Owl, guinea fowl, hoopoe, lapwing, ibis, bald ibis, glossy ibis, saddle-billed stork, flamingo, heron, ostrich, egret, cormorant, swallow, sparrow, white-fronted goose, pintail, widgeon, quail, duckling, plover, dove, cockerel, phoenix. All of these spring to life in the Egyptian hieroglyphs. They are birds and they are words. Ancient Egyptian bodies felt and saw and processed the cosmos through a kaleidoscopic array of birds. They learned language through birds, literally. Ancient Egyptian linguistic texts teach language through the imagery of birds, through sounds as birds, through ideas as birds. So that it is not a stretch to say, in the case of Egypt anyway, birds gave birth to words. There is a deep link between birds and language. Scientists are now finding that birdsong and human language are closer than we might think, that we share genes with ancestral birds and these genes relate directly to speech and song, and that the language of birds is structured in the same basic pattern as human language. So the Kaluli of Papua New Guinea will directly tell you that their language came from doves, and their ritual seances came from doves, and utilize dove song as a portal into trance. Their culture came from doves, complete with its five ways of weeping. In culture upon culture, it is a bird who brings the fire of ideation and imagination itself. Raven steals the light from a precious box so small, all it could possibly contain was all the light in the universe. And Raven distributes it across the world. Through co-creating with us these minds that soar, that dart about, that see from above, birds open up the door to the possible. As Michael Rappengluck writes, quote, Throughout the world, people deliver myths of a celestial bird or bird hybrid, stealing cosmic fire from the sky sphere to donate it to mankind. This act often is thought to initiate human culture and to be accompanied by the gift of various cultural assets. End quote. Birds asked us from the very beginning, is there something in us that also flies? This body does not fly the way that birds' bodies do. But when I link my consciousness, when I gaze upon a soaring bird, there is something in me that travels up and out. What is it? For the Egyptians, the human spirit, Ba, was a bird. So felt visions of an immortal spirit, a spirit that lives on, were sparked into being in conjunction with birds. Susan Brind Morrow writes, quote, The word is ba. It is the word for soul. The ba is a long-legged water bird. 
In the pyramid of Unis, this bird is the white stork. On their seasonal migration north and south, the white storks are seen in the Nile Valley in huge numbers funneling up into the sky. An indelible sight. No doubt what is meant by the white bird is the image of the disembodied soul drawn up into the sky. Three storks or cranes together form the hieroglyph that represents the power or force of a living person. Religious visions of spirit, of the soul that lives on, of life force, are utterly tied to birds. So that the first recorded word we have for life force or spirit is an image of three birds. The admiration of raptors, say Grimm and Gersman, led during the period of the hunters and gatherers directly to religious beliefs. And of course, admiration is not the word I would use because that implies something that happens from afar. I would say the somatic, rapturous interaction of birds and human brains and bodies gave rise to visions of spirit and soul journey, helped us recognize and feel and cultivate that within us that flies. So visions of spirit and the journey after death, the very foundations of religious discourse, are deeply interwoven with our experience of birds. And of course, to see a murmuration pulsing, to see the wave that takes a hundred thousand beings this way and that, the pulsation of the separate moving together, this is an experience akin to religious awe. Birds freed us up for spiritual travel. Our ancestors found that when we fixed our rapturous attention upon the bird in trance, that we ourselves could fly. So when the shaman traveled, they often traveled as a bird. Ascent to the sky in the form of a bird is typically shamanic, says David Lewis Williams. With respect to ascent in the form of a bird, Eliade comments, the ability to turn into a bird is the common property of all kinds of shamanism. Not only the Turco-Mongol, but also the Arctic, American, and Oceanian. Flight is inherent to the trance experience, the rapturous experience, the embodied experience. There is nothing escapist about flight, for to assume the body of the bird and soar into the universal body is to honor the full extent of what the body is. To fly is to open the mind to the starry sky open our vision beyond the immediate tangles of life to the sky. For in a world of strife and ruin, you also fly. Despite the gripping binds that hold you, you also fly. Despite the voice that says you cannot, or should not, or do not deserve it, or aren't allowed, or are too privileged, or aren't privileged enough, despite this, you also fly. There is that in us which longs to fly. What do we do with such longings? Do we allow ourselves to fly? Or do we feel instead something like the world is in disarray so maybe I should stop flying? Certain traditions put too much emphasis on flight and not enough on the ground so maybe I should stop flying? There is pain in the world, so maybe I should stop flying. I feel guilty when I enjoy myself, so maybe I should stop flying. Exactly the opposite. There is pain in the world. I must 
take flight. To see, to see, to see, to see what to do, spirit, to see what to do, creator. Oh creator, oh great bird, I must take flight. I must take flight. You probably won't encounter traditional journeyer, seeker, seer, shamans refusing to fly because of the mess that the world is in. In fact, they fly specifically because the world is in disarray. For the issues facing the world demand that we free up the imaginative consciousness. All of the upward trajectories that we learn from birds can help us ideate, imaginate, envision what this world and our lives can be. And how can we possibly see our way out of the mess that we're in if we don't gain perspective, if we don't let ourselves soar? For the movements of birds are the very movements of consciousness. The trajectories that our thoughts and ideas and mental imaginations take mirror bird flight directly, which means that consciousness swoops, consciousness dives, consciousness in flight hopes. Could we hope without birds? Hope is the thing with feathers, Emily Dickinson wrote. And wherever there are birds, there is hope, says Mehmet Murat Idan. All about us, all the time, are flocks of embodied soaring. All about us are bodies of nested transcendence. All about us is feathered hope. Soaring and returning home, all about us the world is rising. The great bodies of birds are rising. The great flocks are rising. 1.5 million flamingos from the smoking ash cones of the soda lakes of East Africa, rising. Rising as the phoenix rises. The flamingo gave the ancient Egyptians the word for red and gave them a vision of a fiery bird that regenerates from ash. Visions of cosmic regeneration embedded in bodies and imaginations, all because of birds. Consciousness rising from the fire again because of birds. And high, high above us, the birds call to them. The moment we hear the eagle shriek, the consciousness expands. It travels to the exact height of the eagle, the dimensions of the human mind are exactly the dimensions that are carved out for us by birds. The eagle cries from a dome of everlasting blue. Perhaps he is calling you towards an expanded way of seeing. Perhaps he is calling you to melt at last into sun rays. Perhaps the eagle is saying, you too must fly. You too must fly. Admit it, says Fred Lamott in his poem Ancestry. You have wings, vast and crystal, like mine, like mine. Let us spread now those crystal wings. On birds and the imperative of mystic flight, this time on the Emerald. <laughs>
What is it to fly? To fly is many things, but certainly one of those things is to experience unbridled joy. You can say birds fly because that is an evolutionary adaptation, a series of mutations over millions of years, a survival response, even a defense mechanism. It's a whole lot safer up there, right? And sure, you can see it that way. But what if what we call evolution is actually the fractal expression of the freedom, joy, bliss of creation in action over time? And therefore, birds fly because it's a f***ing blast. I saw two ravens once near Chimney Rock in northern New Mexico riding the air currents next to a great sandstone cliff, dipping, flipping, rolling onto their backs, playing at getting close, as close as they possibly could, and then wheeling apart again. There is no mechanistic evolutionary explanation for what they were doing other than playing. Birds remind us, link us, invite us into the joy of a universe at play. The universe, as Saraswati reminds Queen Lila in the Yoga Vashista, as they dart about the cosmos and traverse the galaxies, the universe is always at play. In a suffering world, can we hold the paradox that even as we navigate deep cycles of suffering and loss, we exist in a world at play? Despite all the bird delights in flight. And if they delight in flight, why not us? If they delight in flight, why not us? I saw the sheer water dive just for the love of it. I saw a woodpecker tap the great tree just for the pounding rush of it. I heard an eagle cry high above for the pure freedom of crying aloud. Did you hear in the pre-dawn light the song of morning birds, singing, the sun is rising, the sun is rising again, the sun is rising again. I saw swallows whisk the waters and summon the winds, whisk the waters summoning great winds as the hour turned gold. Birds fly out of delight. The soaring skylark, Percy Shelley wrote, pours forth its whole heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. And if they delight in flight, why not we? What would it be to drop everything for a moment? Drop everything and delight in the soaring. Can we do this? Delight in flight. Seriously, sometimes I just want to shout, what has happened to the joy of life? Buried in smartphone-induced somatic numbness and endless polarized drama, stifled by too much news of the end of the world, I'd rather learn from one bird how to sing, said E.E. E. Cummings, than teach 10,000 stars how not to dance. Our Discourse might be well-intended, it might be timely, it might even be right. 
but is it freeing up birds to sing or is it instructing stars not to dance? So much discourse to me these days is, here's another way in which you cannot dance. No, you cannot possibly dance. You cannot possibly fly. In a burning world, how could you dance? In a world with all these systemic issues, how dare you dance? How could you possibly fly? And meanwhile, the cranes rise every morning from the water into the rising sun. And a 13th century Persian poet cries to his beloved teacher in exultant ecstasy. Shams, he cries, Shams, Shams. Shams, I am a water bird. Shams, I am a water bird. Flying into the sun. Some birds symbolized vital solar energy, the power of air and sky, fire and light, and the play of colors at dawn or dusk. The rays of the rising sun are compared with a single bird or a flock of birds flying up. Certain bird species are thought to be descendants or messengers of the sun or the sun itself. So birds are seen as the messengers of the sun because they literally are attuned to the sun. Did you know that falcons ride on sunbeams in order to blind their prey? They align themselves with the sun and dive, reaching speeds of nearly 300 miles per hour so that the prey can't see them. To see a falcon dive is to be taken on a somatic journey. It is gasp-inducing, the sharpness, the precision, like that one insight that came to us that one time, like a sunbeam, so sharp, so clear. That one insight into how we were living our lives that came piercing through the fog in the light of day and dove right into the heart of it, and we saw what was needed in a situation, saw our lives in a whole new light, brought raptor vision to it, brought eagle eyes to it, brought sunlight to it. You see, the animate is not just that which proliferates rhizomatically in cool shady spaces. The animate is also that which is direct as a sunbeam, as a falcon's dive, as an eagle's stare. The spherical, unblinking eye and piercing cry of the eagle is solar consciousness, illuminating, unflinching the stare that leaves nowhere to hide. A 360-degree, all-encompassing stare that sees things exactly as they are. So in many traditions, the eagle is synonymous with the sun, 
The ancient Celts called the eagle the one with sun-illuminated eyes. I am the eagle, invoked Sufi mystic Ibn al-Arabi. To me belongs the most elevated station, the most elevated beauty, and the most brilliant shining light. I am sublime effusion, the light of existence. I am the one who summons existence and it obeys. For the Aztecs, Hull and Fergus say, the eagle was the avatar of the sun. The Matratense Codex contains a vivid description of the sun as an eagle. The sun has risen, he who gives warmth. The precious child, the eagle that rises, how will he go on his way? But the sun was not just associated with eagles. For Mesoamerican cultures, the sun came accompanied with a vast array of birds. A multicolored mandala of bird cries and flapping wings emanating from the luminous source. A flaming, feathered halo of awakened consciousness. A halo which included the brightest bird of all. The macaw. In Brazil, the bird known as the arara. Quote, In Mayan, Inca, and Aztec cultures, macaws were seen as being representatives of the sun gods. So the Mayans tell of Kinikakmo, the macaw with the solar face. And they named the scarlet macaw the eye of day, or the bird of fire. At certain Mesoamerican temples, macaws were ritually fed at high noon, at the exact moment the sun reached its zenith, and scarlet macaws would descend like brilliant sunbeams from above and alight on the very pinnacle of the temple. In the macaw, we see the full display of the solar energies, all the colors of sunrise and sunset and the day in between, all the colors of life. Macaw feathers were precious, they were currency in the ancient world. The brilliant blue and red and yellow feathers have been found all across the ancient Americas, traded all the way north to this part of the world, the Colorado Plateau. Macaws, Barres said, began to appear on North American Pueblo pottery a thousand years ago. They were and remain symbols of the sun and of the south, from where rain often came. Across Mesoamerica and South America, macaw feathers adorn the heads of seers and visionaries. Why? The headdress with its projecting feathers illuminates. The macaw feathers are rays emanating from the skull of the seer. They are sunbeams of conscious illumination. Quote, The feather headdress symbolized the fiery mental power during ecstasy. which people thought to be solar and to originate at the center of the cosmos. Have you seen the seer who brings sunlight crowned with a halo of illuminated feathers? Have you seen the flaming plumage of illuminated consciousness? Have you seen how it sparkles? Have you seen how it shines? Do you know that there are dozens upon dozens of words for the types of illumination one can only see in rapture? And that light, visionary light, trance light, 
comes in as many varieties as there are colors of macaw feathers. So the macaw, with its penetrating eyes, its phantasmagoric colors, its loud cries, is not just cartoonish, a mascot, a caricature of itself. The rude squawks of the macaw aren't just comical. The macaw is there to wake us up into the solar world in all its illumination, creativity, enchantment, color, vibrancy, and life. Saying, if this will not wake you up, what will? If this loud squawking cry and these primary colors won't wake you up into the enchantments of the cosmos, what will? Awake, the macaw says. Wake up. And here is something to check out. Loud squawks and piercing cries seem to be a calling card of avian messengers of the sun. Birds that call loudly and rudely are associated with the sun. How do we know the rising sun is arriving? Before dawn, in the silent space before dawn, who cries out? The rooster calls as the sun rises. The red coxcomb splays like the rays of the rising sun. From Rappengluck, quote, People considered the time at which certain birds herald dawn through their cries or singing to be a very important signal of the rising sun. They thought that the crowing cockerel, a symbol of solar fire, heat, and light, attracted the sun to rise up from the darkness of the netherworld. And Furness says, In Greece, where the cockerel was first introduced around 700 B.C., it became linked with several of the gods. It was dedicated to Apollo, the sun god, as people believed that its crowing heralded the sunrise and its red comb symbolized the sun. Because the rooster crows loudly at sunrise, it is celebrated around the world as a link between humans and the heavens, from which it summons sunlight. So the Taoist, Zoroastrian, and Shinto traditions, Southeast Asian animist traditions all associate the rooster with the sun. And have you ever noticed that the full cycle of day is displayed in the rooster's plumage? From the rayed red crown of sunrise, to the burning amber of high noon right at the heart, to the blue-black tail of night, the rooster is the solar cycle embodied. The rude awakening that comes from rooster calls at 4 a.m. is the rude awakening of sunlight, of solar illumination in our lives, which is undeniable. Digging into all the places we'd rather it didn't, saying, you've got no choice but to wake up now. Look now, arise now, wake up, it's day. How can roosters be holy, we might ask? How can they be revered? They're so rude. If you're trying to sleep at sunrise, on Kauai, for example, <laughs> roosters are rude, right? Well, let's put it this way. The spiritual wake-up call is rude. The spiritual wake-up call of inviting that crystal-clear, unflinching beam of sunlight of daytime into our lives, of throwing the dusty, locked cabinet doors of our psychosomatic spaces open and letting the sunshine in, nothing could be ruder than that. Yet, Every day the sun rises, that is what we are invited to do. You know, how am I really doing today? No, how am I really doing? How about I let the sun shine in and find out?
all this talk of the sun and illumination, I don't know, it might be making some people uncomfortable, I guess. It sounds almost silly to say, but don't be afraid of the sun itself because of the fraught history of solar mythologies. To do so, to shy away from the very sun above because modern Western culture bastardized the sun and we're still living in the long shadow of that bastardization, is to deny ourselves an absolutely vital experience of being embodied. We must connect with the sun. Our body is woven sunlight. The sun pulses through the body as vital prana. The energy of plants that fuels the body comes directly from the sun. The sun is animate. The sun is alive and breathing. The sun is present in every cell in your body which derives its fundamental life force from the sun. All of the rotting compost that constitutes all of our newly popular mycelial soil and underworld mythologies, all of that exists because of the sun. And at sunrise, the bird Gamayun sings the world into being. The sun in the Egyptian hymn of Amun is the round egg of a great white goose. The sun rises to the sound of singing birds. The sun, the source of life itself. And all that we can learn and gain from illumination in our lives is available to us through the sun and the singing, soaring birds that take us there to the very heart of the sun. Ride the wings of trance right to the heart of the sun. The birds draw us up, up to the celestial bodies that form the primal architecture of cosmos and consciousness. The sun, the moon, the pole star, the Milky Way. In many shamanic visions, this cosmos body is constructed in tiers that rise from the netherworlds upwards into the sky, graduating up in finer layers, fine strata, until arriving at the zenith, the celestial pole. The celestial pole only reachable in many traditions as a bird. According to traditions worldwide, Rappengluck says, birds have the unique ability and mobility to dominate vertically through all cosmic strata, allowing them to develop and control three-dimensional space. Some species, such as raptors and migratory birds, which, due to their biological aptitude, fly at very high altitudes, are thought to access the realm of luminaries and to reach the zenith. So birds, he explains, serving as helpers and carriers, took the shaman through the cosmic strata right up to the center of the world, localized at the celestial pole. So the Siberian shaman, rooted by going up, oriented by going up, why do we assume that what we call root always has to be down? If we follow the natural progression of gravity through the body, where does it take us? Down to the center of the earth, right? Yes, it does. And then where? It takes us up to the center of the sun. Gravity pulls us to the center of the sun. Follow the bird of prana, of expanded ideation, of imaginal vision, of soaring flight. Follow it right to the center of the sun. Right to the pole star. The pole star is a great root, 
and what we call embodied earthly practice is also anchored in the sky. High flying birds take the journeyer into the place of seeing, the high center of the world, the high, high center of the world. Not the same as that deep center of the belly, the pelvic floor. We're speaking now of the other center above the crown. And between these two centers, the world tree grows. The great fire drill of creation turns. Let us not forget the high, high center, where we gain the vast, encompassing view of all this, where we see the turning wheels of creation itself, where, in some traditions, a great spirit bird turns the very world axis with the flapping of its wings. Garuda, the great eagle, stops and starts the movement of the universe with a pulse of his great wings. Isis, in the form of a kite, a small Egyptian eagle, pounds her wings over the inert yet aroused potentiality of the body of Osiris, the universe unmanifest yet longing to be, and coaxes creation into being through the flap of her wings. So the old image of the bird on the post, as old an image as you will find, is an image of the world axis and the great bird that turns it. It is an image of the structure of the cosmos and an image of the body, of the soaring, imaginal, bird traveler of consciousness that lives in our higher neural cortex atop our tree-like spine. Quote, birds, notably sitting on trees or posts, indicated the center. Basic essentials of the celestial bird motif can already be found in the cave of Lascaux 16,500 years ago. A bird stick depicts the world axis, aligned to Cygnus, which was then the celestial pole. This vision of a bird that lives right at the height of the axis, this association of birds to the pole star and the zenith of the cosmos, speaks to something else about birds and the sacred place they hold. Birds are navigators. And how we orient and navigate this world sphere of cosmos and consciousness is through birds. How many birds are circling the world right now? How many aloft in great spiral bands gyring through the skies? How many snow geese, how many frigate birds, how many albatross in the midst of great migrations? And how do they do it? How do they know where to go each year? They orient to the poles and the constellations just as the shamans thought. They ride the magnetic waves of the earth, migrating in vast numbers in rhythm with the turning of the seasons. They navigate by the Milky Way itself. Quote, the mythical relationship of migratory birds to the Milky Way and the celestial pole has a scientific basis. Bird species orientate themselves by a time-independent star compass based on certain shapes of constellations to pinpoint the rotation of the sky and the celestial pole. Everywhere in the eastern Baltic, says Yuri Bereskin, the Milky Way is the path of migratory birds. Can you feel it? The great migrating flocks, spiraling flocks attuned to the turning wheel of the stars. The position of the points of light who are themselves mythical birds in unceasing configurations. 
attuned to slightest changes in electromagnetic frequency. Each year, over 4,000 species of birds make long migrations. Four billion birds migrate within the Americas alone. Four billion birds tuned to the stars. Four billion birds riding air currents and sonic waves. This many-tiered world is encircled with birds. Quote, Earth is like a giant magnet. Magnetic lines of force or field lines emanate from its poles, weakening and flattening as they near the equator. Birds seem to be able to detect even tiny changes in the inclination or vertical angle of the magnetic field, and may use these to determine their latitude. So the celestial bodies are a path that shamans, departing spirits, and migratory birds take to reach other cosmic strata. The Milky Way is a gate, which, following the migration of birds during spring and autumn, periodically opens the entrance to the other world. Birds show the way to the other world. The journeyer finds the other world, the seasonal, calendrical, lunar, temporospatial portal opened up by the birds above and soars right through that portal. All across the world, it seems, seekers and journeyers transform themselves into birds. Pirzia Khan tells us of the Sufi saint Abu Yazid, the Sheikh of Bistam. Quote, He became a bird whose body was made of oneness and whose wings were made of everlastingness. So doing, he flew until he reached the field of forever and saw in its center the world tree, root, branch, fruit, and all. Fly with me now to the field of forever. Fly as a bird. Fly to the very center of the field of forever. Perch high amid the branches of the world tree. Even higher, higher still. Those high gray branches of the world tree. Those high white branches of the world tree those high, high branches of the world tree, awash with light, dripping with honey. Fly with me now, beloved, and let loose your cry of freedom. You do not have to be hesitant about soaring. The seer flies, and in flying gains the vision. The prophecy, the understanding of what is and what will come to be, this arises in flight. This journeys on the wings of a bird. Why shapeshift into a bird in order to see farther? Because birds literally see more than we do. They see farther. They see wider. They see in more detail. They see faster and they see more vividly. The seer seeks the vision of the bird because the bird is a better seer. In her book, Falcon, Helen MacDonald speaks of the awe-inspiring physiology of these formidable birds. She explains how human brains see no more than 20 events per second. Falcons, she says, see 70 to 80. While we have around 30,000 cones in the most sensitive parts of the retina, raptors have around 1 million. More than 30 times as many. They see polarized and ultraviolet light. 
They dive at speeds up to 300 miles an hour. They withstand four times the amount of G-force that even the hardiest Air Force pilots and astronauts can. Their bones are built for it. Light, streamlined bones. So the Egyptian initiates' work was to transform themselves, their flesh, to falcon flesh, and their bones to falcon bones. Turkic myths tell us how the first seers, the first ones able to read the will of the universe through the skies above, were themselves descended from falcons. The seer is part bird or a descendant of birds. There is avian blood in there somewhere, avian blood that stirs the soul of the seer to flight. As MacDonald says, quote, the notion that the first priests were born from the union of a falcon and a woman is firmly located in a shamanic religio-mythical universe. And Moro says, the falcon has long been translated as the god Horus, the Egyptian word Hr, as spelled 2,000 years later by the Greeks. Hr relates to turning, where the word gyre or gyration comes from. Horus, Hr, meaning the falcon, is the child of Osiris. Osiris is the corpse, the falcon is its child, rising away in peregrine circles from all that dies. The universal shamanic image of the spirit rising from the body in the form of a bird. The soul rises in a gyre. DNA rises in a helix. How closely related the meaning of the hieroglyphic text is to some absolutely fundamental design of life. Turning is transformation. The world turns in great falcon arcs. For the Horus cult at Edfu, Horus the falcon was the universe. He was the celestial falcon who flew up at the beginning of time. His wings were the sky, MacDonald says. His right eye was the sun, his left the moon, and the spots on his breast were the stars. When he beat his wings, the winds blew. Every autumn, she explains, a live falcon was ceremonially crowned as the new king at the Temple of Edfu, the center of the Horus cult in Upper Egypt. There at Edfu, the priests kept a grove of sacred falcons, and at Saqqara, the remains of over a hundred thousand mummified falcons have been found. For the falcon, in that vision, is the spirit, the divine Holy Spirit itself. Quote, the holy falcon with its glittering wings is the sky as revolving time, the arising and the dissolution of all living things. In some traditions of the indigenous peoples of the Great Plains of North America, MacDonald tells us, the falcon was the only animal that knew the location of the hole in the sky through which it could reach the great spirit. After being asked whispered questions, the falcon flew through the hole in the sky and then back to deliver the divine replies to the shaman. Those questions you have about what's next and what to do and how to embody ideals in the body of community and what is the great way forward. Instead of letting those questions turn over and over in your brain, have you tried instead whispering those questions into the ear of a falcon? Have you sent that falcon to the place where answers live as billowing clouds, as slowly turning cycles, as songs, as humming light? What do I do? I asked the falcon. 
and the answer that came was, wait until winter. What do I do? I asked the falcon, and the answer that came was, wait until spring. I asked the falcon, what do I do? And the answer came, plummet, and then rise. So birds deliver divine replies. The birds in the myths are deliverers of prophecies. Sometimes they whisper them directly in the ears of the seers. Sometimes they indicate what is to come through their song or the pattern of their flight. Quote, Ornithomancy, reading omens from the actions of birds, was practiced by many ancient cultures in the Mediterranean, Furness says. Of all the birds associated with prophecy and far sight, it was swans who were most sacred to Apollo, the god of prophecy himself. For swans do in fact deliver prophecy. Have you heard? Swans see their own death coming. They see death coming, and they sing for the first time. Quote, their first and only song, their last song, which is the swan song that announces the imminent moment. How could birds possibly deliver prophecy? Science scoffs. Our superstitious ancestors thought that they could tell the future from the flights of birds. Silly, right? But you can tell the future from birds. Birds are able to sense changes in barometric pressure, temperature, wind direction, and other parameters to find the best conditions for flight, for roosting and breeding. And because of this, they deliver information about what is to come to pass all the time. In my home forests here, the birds tell us very clearly when a storm is coming and when it is about to stop. Even modern old me can hear what they're saying. Imagine how attuned our ancestors were to birdsong. Tuvan Siberians, Gilchrist writes, forecast weather from the call of the black woodpecker. The Kaluli of New Guinea, a culture built on birdsong, Know the changing of the seasons by the call of the rainbow bee-eater and the mountain pigeon. Stephen Feld says this in his book Sound and Sentiment, quote, The early morning calls of Bolo, the brown oriole, and Sagalon, the hooded butcher bird, tell children to wake up, while their late afternoon calls tell children to gather with their families. The late afternoon appearance of Bas, the black-breasted wood swallow, calling Bas, Bas, brother-in-law, brother-in-law, means that people should come and sit together and have food, end quote. Prophecy, the understanding of rhythms of life and how they will play out seasonally and in relation to larger patterns, does come from birds. It comes from knowing the flight of birds and listening to the song of birds and from freeing in trance, in ecstasy, the bird of mystic flight to the upper spaces of the cosmos in order to see. For birds live in the human body as imagination, ideation, vision. In many myths, the spark of initiation, the spark of the journey, the very beginning of an idea comes from birds. If you've ever heard the Russian stories of the firebird, and you've really tuned in while listening, you know that these are stories that carry with them 
a deep and primal light. There in the dark Siberian forest, there in the thick forest of fir and spruce and birch, there is a light, a single feather ablaze with luminosity in that place of long shadows, a single feather that sparks the whole story into being. As Gilchrist explains in her book, Russian Magic, quote, where the feather of the firebird falls, according to popular belief, a new artistic tradition will spring up. Or it may be the beginning of a new fairy story, triggered when the hero discovers the shining feather and goes in search of its source. The quest is initiated by the appearance of the firebird, like a revelation, a blaze of light, which is a sign of another world beyond our own. The feather is a reminder of this, some spark of inspiration that has come into the human soul which lodges there and which urges us to go forward and follow the path. So the bird is the instigator of the journey. The bird tells us it's time to rise. The bird tells us it's time to free ourselves of the familiar and journey far. Journey far. It's time for consciousness to journey far. In the classic Sufi poem, The Conference of the Birds by Attar of Nishapur, an assembly of birds longs to find a king, a sovereign, a leader. A messenger arrives, a hupui bird. Assembly of birds, the hupui spoke. I am the messenger bird for the visible and the invisible. I come to you in tune with the great almighty, schooled in the ways of the great mysteries. With its Solomonic crown and its high, high call, the hupui is the messenger and is consciousness itself. The high call of consciousness, saying, journey with me across the great valleys. Journey with me, I will lead you to the source, to the sovereign. We will find the Samorak, the Hupui tells the birds. The Samorak, the great mythical bird, she will be your sovereign. So the Hupui leads the birds on their long and arduous journey. They have to cross seven valleys. The valley of the quest, where they cast aside all dogma, belief, and unbelief. The valley of love, where reason is abandoned for the sake of love. The valley of knowledge, where worldly knowledge, informational knowledge, becomes utterly useless. The valley of detachment, where all attachments to the world are given up. The valley of unity, where one realizes that everything is connected and that the beloved is beyond and within everything, including harmony, multiplicity, and eternity. The valley of wonderment, where, entranced by the beauty of the beloved, one is steeped in awe and finds that they have never known or understood anything. And the valley of poverty and annihilation, where the self disappears into the universe and the wayfarer becomes nothing, becomes timeless, becomes all times at once. Many of the birds never make it, Many fall by the wayside. Some die of fright just hearing about the journey that is required. 
Some die of hunger and thirst along the way. And for the 30 birds who finally arrive at the dwelling place of the Simorg, what do they discover? They discover their own reflections in a lake. Their own reflections in a lake. It is they staring back at themselves in the reflective lake of consciousness. Each of their bird reflections are distinct and all combine to make one bird, the Simorg. The word Simorg, you see, is the name of the mythical bird and it also means 30 birds. Simorg, 30 birds the great unitary consciousness, the great sovereign goddess of unified consciousness, is in each one and is all together. From Henri Corbin, quote, This is the reunion which so many mystics have tried to describe. In a final episode, which is one of the great moments of world mystical literature, Attar describes this exaltation of self-recognition through an other in whom one recognizes oneself, as if in a mirror. At this moment, in the reflection of their own faces, the Simorg, the thirty birds, saw the face of the eternal Simorg. As they looked, there was no doubt. This was indeed the mythical bird, yet this Simorg was also the thirty birds. Then they were overwhelmed. They saw themselves as 30 birds and the great bird at once. Simorg and Simorg were one and the same reality. In all the universe, none had ever heard of such a thing. All of them fell into a trance and remained in a state of meditation beyond meditation. They did not even need to use language to inquire of the Simorg as to the meaning of this paradox. Their very state of meditation was in itself an inquiry, and this answer came to them. This sun-like majesty of mine is a mirror. Whoever comes before it sees all of themselves, body and soul, soul and body. They see themselves whole. Therefore, lose yourself in me so that you may find yourself in me. And so the shadow lost itself in the sun. Peace. And so the journey of the birds is the journey of self-reflective consciousness. The birds are consciousness itself. Birds and consciousness. The two ravens of Odin are Hugin and Mimin, thought and memory. Each night they fly out from his shoulders, Karl Ruck tells us, to return at daybreak, bringing knowledge to Odin, since, as carrion birds, they know what has happened to the warriors on the battlefield. The scavengers know the state of the kingdom, 
They know it better than anyone. The ravens know. The ravens remember. The raven plays a significant part in Siberian shamanism, Gilchrist says, where the bird is the shaman's faithful and favorite informant. So a thousand years ago and more, the Norse seers and the Siberian shamans understood that there was a link between birds and consciousness, and specifically between ravens and memory. Modern science now tells us what these seers knew all along, that ravens and crows, corvids, remember in ways that defy scientific logic. Quote, It's worth noting that corvids recognize and recall not only fellow corvids, but humans too. They can pick out familiar human faces from a crowd, particularly those that represent a threat. But it's not just that. They don't just remember faces. Corvids can pass along knowledge of these faces to other corvids so that flocks far away who have never seen a particular person will still know them on sight. How can it be? How can ravens transmit knowledge of facial features to each other? Do they speak it to each other, sing it to each other? Or is it like it is in the story of the Simorg, that there is a consciousness of the many and a consciousness of the one at play in flocks of birds, that each bird is conscious and the many are conscious together? And so imagery and knowledge and history flow from one to the other, from one to the many, to the whole, and then back to each one. How do a million starlings know how to murmurate together? How to turn together? Which way to bend, which way to soar? How do lovers know how to move together? How does a caribou herd all turn to the west at once? How do silver sardines spiral in deep seas together as one? Consciousness is a flock. It is a herd. We are conscious together, perceptive together. We move together. This body of the world feels together like one great herd, like one great body of a bird made of birds. I was of three minds, Wallace Stevens once wrote, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. Which is the mind? The birds, the tree, all of it together? Where is the mind located? Is it in the brain of each individual blackbird? Is it in the body of the murmuration, the body of the flock, the body of the world? The black crow, for Sufi mystic Ibn Arabi, was the body of the world itself. In The Universal Tree and the Four Birds, Arabi transmits the wisdom of the crow. This is the poem of the jet black crow, he says. With the name The Manifest, the crow is the matrix for the corporeal entities of the universe. Although dark himself, he is the source of the myriad sparks of light, in that the stars and planets are all derived from his universal body. The crow is the body of the world, and that body and all that is manifest is sacred. Quote, the world's shunning philosophers have maligned the body as the source of darkness and evil, but the crow seeks to set the record straight. So, a thousand years ago, the crow becomes an image of the sacred body of the world and a warning against spiritual bypass. Quote, the peroration of the crow 
is in part a reproach to spiritual types who disdain the created world of bodies and limitation and night. The Sheikh says that there are people of the right hand who care only for spiritual things and people of the left hand who care only for the things of this world. Then there are the people who make no distinction between the spiritual and the mundane and they are those who have been brought near. Since the cosmos, he says, is created upon principles of arithmetic, geometry, and music, all these principles receive their first determination in the universal body. For that reason, the crow rightly calls himself the foundation of songs. The jet black crow, because of his darkness, is a keeper of secrets and a repository of the divine trust. In many traditions, to follow the raven is to go into trance. The raven is the familiar who knows the chthonic spaces. The shaman follows the raven into the deep places of the world, the places of humming mystery. For the bird is trance itself. Garuda, the great Vedic eagle, takes the mantras up the world axis and his flapping wings stop the spinning of the three worlds. The whoosh of trance takes us to eternity, where time as we know it ceases. The practitioner, says Sudhana, finds a perception surpassing time, space, and every conceivable distinction. They do not rest on anything, like a bird in the sky. Their consciousness rests in vastness. Nothing holds them, he says, but God. The bird is the vehicle of consciousness alteration itself. Arabi describes doves delivering a rapture so overwhelming that their song causes the poet to become unconscious. He interprets doves as, quote, spirits of the intermediate world, the bearers of the inspiration that comes at the tinkling sound which is like the noise of a chain when it strikes a rock. They cause this heart to vanish even as they themselves vanish on hearing that sound. So birds are equated with trance, not just because of the soaring, the expansiveness, the far-seeing gaze, but also because of sound. Do you know the rapture of birdsong? <laughs> That as the sun rises, an arc of bird song sweeps across the world. In the Gaudiya Bhakti hymns and songs, the forest of Vrindavan, where Krishna and Radha do their nightly dance, is synonymous with rapturous trance. In the pulsing forest of trance, branches wave, nectars ooze, and cuckoos sing. The cuckoo is the messenger of rapture. The cuckoo heralds absorption into divine love. Humming, buzzing, whistling, pulsing are synonymous with the trance state. So birds with distinct sounds or cries are equated with heightened trance consciousness, including, how could we forget, the smallest bird of all. Little hummingbird. The hummingbird, say the Chumash, 
once went on a great journey up, all the way to reach the blanket of darkness that had been thrown over the world. And with his little beak he pricked holes in the blanket and the light of the upper world beyond came pouring through. And of course, this is a story about the power and determination of small things. But it's also a story about the shining hum of trance itself. Trance which hums and glimmers and shimmers and pierces the veil of the upper spaces. And then the light beyond pours through. For the hummingbird is trance. The hummingbird is consciousness. Consciousness, like the hummingbird, buzzes and hums in heightened states. Consciousness, like the hummingbird, is not bound to one directional flight. It zips, darts, hovers, moves back and forth, shines, glistens, and carries with it an unexpected light. Consciousness, like the iridescent throat feathers of the hummingbird, reflects in momentary glimpses and flashes. Like the hummingbird, consciousness rings out. The hummingbird returns us to that little, shining, humming, hovering point of focus that carries us, wrapped, all the way to the other world, with its hummingbird throat colors, ruby, emerald green, and azure. Trance spaces open from the tiniest of movements, from the littlest of things pours through an almost impossible light. Listen to the sounds of the birds. Have you listened in the hours before dawn, when the whole world is rising, and the gray dawn is approaching and the light is returning, and a thousand little flutes with wings and eyes sing to greet it? Quote, to understand the language of birds, Pendle says, one needs not ears, not cochlea and tympanum, but a cellular hearing, where the organs of perception have expanded to include skin, hair follicles, heartbeat, and whatever it is that is all of it together. If we allow it, if we practice, birdsong awakens the ancestral sense faculties. It strikes a bell in us that is so deep, so primal, so somatic, we don't even know that bell is being struck. Birdsong calibrates consciousness. A consciousness whose biological architecture arose in tandem with birdsong is incomplete without the song of birds. It's my strong opinion that we would not be able to think the way we think, feel the way we feel, ideate the way we ideate, hope the way we hope, without birdsong. Close to half the birds on the planet are songbirds, Ackerman tells us. Some 4,000 species. And it's easy to assume that all this bird song is programming. It's easy to assume that birds are pre-programmed to sing. That bird song is somehow mechanical, because in the modern world we assume that everything in nature is mechanical. Many people assume that bird songs are genetically encoded, Ackerman continues. But songbirds go through the same process of vocal learning that people do. They listen to adult exemplars, they experiment, and they practice, honing their skills like children learning a musical instrument. Why do we assume that we are the only artists in nature? Why do we assume that we are the only ones that receive inspiration and translate that into practice and expression? 
What kind of a cosmos do we live in when we think that birds sing because that's what they're programmed to do, as opposed to a cosmos in which nature itself exists in a perpetual state of revelatory self-exploration? Learning, receiving, modifying, transmitting, repurposing the very air into calls of delight, of longing, of anguish, of exultation and bliss. Repurposing the air into bliss through the song of birds. When we shift this view, then we understand birdsong as more than robotic response, but a foundational somatic presence in minds and hearts and bodies. Then we start to understand the profound effect that birdsong has on human perception, interaction, and culture itself. Birdsong gave us what? Well, the blues, for one. From Stephen Feld, quote, The whippoorwill is prominent in several popular songs emanating from Tin Pan Alley. One I thought about often was The Birth of the Blues, which says, From a whippoorwill, out on a hill, they took a new note, pushed it through a horn till it was worn into a blue note, and then they nursed it, rehearsed it, and gave out the news that the Southland gave birth to the blues. So the blues comes from birdsong. But it's not just the blues. Musical and oral traditions around the world arise directly from birdsong. The songs and hymns of Celtic bards were infused with birdsong from the start, a tradition that continues to this day in Scottish and Irish poetry, which is still steeped in warbles and chirps and bird-inspired meters. Ancient Indo-Iranian poet-singers were called kavis, a word which also means swans. King David and Solomon, it is said, understood the language of birds. The Koyukon people in the Arctic listened to the language of loons and owls. And in Southeast Asia, Hmong courtship rituals imitate birdsong. Taoist oral teachings were whistled in bird-like chirps in order to deliver the whistler into meditative reverie, a.k.a. trance. Our music, rhythmic meter, and language itself seem undeniably linked to the calls of birds. A new theory by Shigeru Miyagawa and his colleagues suggests that human language arose from a kind of fusing of the melodic components of birdsong and the more utilitarian, content-rich types of communication used by other primates. The calls of the birds echo deeply in our somatic structures. We see traces of birdsong in classical music, in poetry, in the cadence and lilt of language itself. Birds, as instigators of ideas, as instigators of spiritual reverie, as instigators of trance journeying and language and song and poetry, birds shape human culture. Birds shape culture. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the case of the Kaluli people of Papua New Guinea, whose entire culture, language, central mythologies, their means of grieving, their means of trance rapture, all of it, they say, was delivered to them by birds. Stephen Feld deeply explores how birds and birdsong form the foundation of this culture. Quote, Myths, seasons, colors, gender, taboos, curses, spells, time, space, and naming are systematically patterned. All of these are grounded in the perception of birds, as indicated foremost by the presence of sound. So the presence of bird calls helps organize the rhythm of daily life. 
and within that daily life, human behaviors are understood and associated with birdsong. Language is delivered by birdsong. Musical tradition is delivered by birdsong. Instruments are inspired by birds and are infused with bird magic. Quote, the spell required in the making of a drum uses the name of Tibodai, the crested pitahui, commonly called the Papuan bellbird. Invoking this bird's name in the spell ensures the drum a continuous resonance, like the throbbing, pulsating quality that characterizes the bird's call. So the drum is infused ceremonially, ritually, with bird song. Instruments are gifts of the birds. Songs are received from the birds. Quote, Composers hear these birds' sounds in their heads and flood their inner senses with the call until it unravels into the melody of a song. These birds give them melodic form. The intervals in their calls are the ones used in the melodies, and the birds themselves are then categorized by the sounds they make. Quote, the Kaluli categorize birds in families based on sound properties. Those that sing, those that weep, those that whistle, those that speak the Bosavi language, those that say their own names, those that only sound, and those that make a lot of noise. Of these, the birds that weep play the most central role in Kaluli culture. Kaluli mythic tradition is built around the weeping, mournful, humming, ecstatic, transportive calls of fruit doves. Have you heard the pulsing hum of the fruit dove? When one hears the call, Feld says, the descending intonation is associated with the evocation of sorrow, and the birds are thus said to bring sound-evoking sorrow. The sorrow that the bird brings is tied to a story, a story that lives right at the heart of Kaluli culture, the story of a boy who, from a great sorrow, transformed into a fruit dove. The story itself is built on the sounds of birdsong, and it opens a portal to communal grieving and communal trance ritual, as well as details intricate socio-cultural relationships and how to navigate them, all delivered by birds, by fruit doves. In Kaluli rituals of grieving and rituals of trance induction, practitioners sing like birds and become birds themselves, become the birds singing. Quote, the degree to which the performance was felt to be deeply moving is articulated by which of the four major fruit doves one mentions when evaluating it. The performer, quote, spins weeping and poetry into song. That song moves others to tears and leads to the communal evaluation that the performer has become a bird. To become a bird for the Kaluli is not just an act, a display. It is to cross over into the other world. The Kaluli acknowledge that the world itself is made up of two co-extensive realities, one visible and one a reflection. In their vision, birds are reflections from beyond. Birds are mediators because they are both natural beings and anemama, the gone reflections of people who have left the visible world upon death and reappeared obemise in the form of birds. Birdsong is literally a call from beyond. 
It is the spirit realm, the ancestors, the imaginal singing to us of how it is here and now and of the world beyond all this at the same time. It is a portal. Every time the whippoorwill or cuckoo calls, it is a direct invitation to the embodied vastness, to here and the beyond at once. Becoming a bird is the passage from life to death. It is the assumption of the trance state. To become a bird is something we can feel in the body with each breath. To breathe with the full expression of the ribcage is to free the swan of vital breath. To revel in the trance state for the bhakti practitioner is to become a swan sporting in the lake of delight. To become a bird is to grieve. To become a bird is to embody. To become a bird is to transition from this world to the other world and from the other world to this. He flows forth as an egret. He rises as a pelican, sing the pyramid texts. The pelican, Susan Bryn Morrow tells us, like the stork and the egret, the crane and the ibis, is a white bird that rises from the earth. Once these white water birds rose in the thousands and fell like snow on the Nile. The white bird rises, the spirit soars, say the pyramid texts. Say the words, O light, O bird, this is in your mouth. This is in your mouth. As you become a bird of light, this is in your mouth. Say the words, glittering white as vultures, you are free. You take your wave as the herons, gliding back and forth, the grounds, the kites. You are free. For this body is the murmuration of a hundred thousand starlings. This body is not confined to the skin. This body also flies. This body is the great flocks of water birds that fly, the white crane that flies, the great blue heron that flies. This body a hundred thousand winged souls and one soul at once. Thirty birds and one bird at once. This body, each cell of this body with its own luminous wings. This body, each cell has its plumage. Each vibrating cell reaches with longing, displays its radiance, this body of radiance, each spiral coil of which cries out, In spite of everything, I fly. In spite of everything, Creator, I fly. In spite of everything, I fly. Oh, great world, in spite of everything, I fly. In a world of strife, in a world of pain, I fly. Through the torrent of opinions and the back and forth, I fly. To see, Creator, I fly to see. To see the day that dawns again, I fly. To see the light in your eyes, beloved, I fly. Oh, to see the very fires of creation meet the steaming seas, I fly. To behold the power of the world, I fly. Devoured by the great devourer, I fly. Releasing a great cry to the wind, I fly. Oh, four winds, four winds, I fly. 
I uncoil before you this water bird before the sun. Tillowing, billowing, through feathered fingertips I fly. Com penas iluminadas, plumagem flamejando da consciência acordada. With the flaming plumage of awakened consciousness, I fly. Hatching, shedding, molting, then awkwardly testing new wings, I fly. Hesitant at first, not sure how high I'm allowed to go, I fly. Then in wider and wider circles, I fly. Wider and wider circles, I fly. Then higher, I fly. Higher than the mountaintops, I fly. From the ribs, I fly. From the bones, I fly. From the root, I fly. From the depths, I fly. The rattle shakes, I fly. The river sings, I fly. The teardrops fall, I fly. The wings of the world enfold us forever. Still, I fly. Into the forever, I fly. Into the great forever, I fly, I fly. Still, I fly. Fly with me into the shimmering forever. Across the wetlands at dawn. Fly with me into the high, clear spaces of consciousness. Fly with me, for the world demands you fly. All this the world demands of you, beloved. The world demands you fly. All this the flying, the soaring. All this the calling, the cawing, the shriek, the cry. All this we learn from birds. many amazing musicians participated in this episode. I want to extend my thanks to all of them. Charlotte Malin played viola, and the viola tracks really just allowed this episode to soar. So many thanks to Charlotte. You can find her work at resonanthearthealing.com. And she played a version of Xavier Rudd's song Spirit Bird at the end. Pia allowed us to use her song Beauty Thunders, and she also recorded original music for the episode, beautiful bird call inspired musical track. So thanks to Pia for taking the time to record original music and it came out beautifully. You can find Pia's work on Spotify. It's P-E-I-A. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Pia and I are going to be teaching an upcoming course together in March. And if you're interested in more details on that, you can email themythicbody at gmail.com. My friend C.D. Bay lent her bird-like voice to this episode, really hit those high notes that took us up, 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 up. You can find her music on Spotify as well. It's S-I-D-I-B-E. 
Agna G added some Lithuanian flair to our soaring eagles. Galen Passan contributed some sitar, playing the song Hamsa Dvani, or the Resonance of the Swan. And you can find Galen's sitar music on Instagram, at Galen Passan, G-A-L-E-N-P-A-S-S-E-N. Janae Rogers recorded a beautiful version, a cappella version of Spirit Bird that didn't make it into the final cut. I'll save it for future use. You can check out Janae's music at Vine Music on Instagram. Absolutely beautiful singer, and sorry that the cut didn't make it into this episode. And to my friend and co-conspirator, Den Zolo, for making these uh, hummingbird noises and offering the story of the hummingbird piercing the blanket above. Thank you, Den. This episode also was made possible through the help of Lorraine Coulter, who did research on the episode. And of course, while we made it through many species of birds in this episode, I'd like to acknowledge the, you know, 10,700 plus species that I didn't name in the episode. Uh, There's a whole lot more territory to cover. As usual, this episode makes use of many articles, books, songs, etc. These include the writing of the birds, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs before and after the founding of Alexandria by Stephen Quirk from the UCL Institute of Archaeology, The Names of Things by Susan Bryn Morrow, Shamanism by Mircea Eliadi, The Writings of Mehmet Murat Idan, Hope is the Thing with Feathers by Emily Dickinson, To a Skylark by Percy Bysshe Shelley, Ancestry by Fred Lamott, You Shall Above All Things Be Glad and Young by E.E. E. Cummings, Songs of Bird Gamayun, The Slavic Creation Myth by Dmitry Kushner, What I Want is to See Your Face by Jalaluddin Rumi, translated by Coleman Barks, The Chumash Legend, The Hole in the Blanket, as told by Paul Perota, The Language of Birds by Dale Pendle, What the Robin Knows by John Young, Sound and Sentiment, Birds Weeping, Poetics and Song in Kaluli Expression by Stephen Feld, Highly recommended. The Dawning Moon of the Mind, Unlocking the Pyramid Text by Susan Bryn Morrow. The Universal Tree and the Four Birds by Ibn Arabi, translated by Angela Jaffrey. The Hidden World, Survival of Pagan Shamanic Themes in European Fairy Tales by Carl Ruck. Mingled Waters, Sufism and the Mystical Unity of Religions by Pir Zia Anayat Khan. Russian Magic, Living Folk Traditions of an Enchanted Landscape by Cherry Gilchrist. Flights of Fancy, Birds and Myth, Legend and Superstition by Peter Tate. The book Falcon by Helen MacDonald. The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman. Fidon's wonderful collection, Bird, Exploring the Winged World. That's from Fidon Press. The Conference of the Birds by Attar of Nishapur, translated by Cholet Wolpe. The Voyage and the Messenger, Iran and Philosophy by Henri Corbin. The Pleiades as Openings, The Milky Way as the Path of Birds, and The Girl on the Moon, Cultural Links Across Northern Eurasia by Yuri Bereskin. Eagles in Mesoamerican Thought and Mythology by Carrie Hull and Rob Fergus. Heavenly Messengers, The Role of Birds in the Cosmographies and Cosmovisions of Ancient Cultures. Inside the Neolithic Mind by David Lewis Williams and David Pierce. Shamanic Wisdom in the Pyramid Text, The Mystical Tradition of Ancient Egypt by Jeremy Nadler. Thirteen Ways of Looking at a Blackbird, the poem by Wallace Stevens. The Beautiful Languages of People Who Talk Like Birds, that's David Robson writing for the BBC in 2017. The song Let the Sunshine In from the Hair soundtrack. And of course, the Top Gun Anthem by Harold Faltermeyer. The thing I found perhaps most disturbing about the new Top Gun movie was the ubiquitous presence of non-ironic mustaches. End times, my friends. End times. End times.